A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Stephen Bush. I'm Alvaray. I'm Anusha Kellyan. And I'm Patrick Maguire. We just want to say thanks so much for our Westminster team for joining Stephen and me to do this podcast, although they haven't worn the requisite Doc Martin uniform. So we will be... I've worn Stephen's old uniform of uh, New Balance (laughs) trainers before his... uh, Shiropodist told him to start wearing normal shoes. Always, oh, was that a you were no, told that, to? I, I, I usually have some story about how I'm trying to be adult now, but but no, the, <laughs> the, the, the real story is, is that I was having debilitating foot pain. And you know, when you kind of just go, oh, maybe it's not this problem. I guess it's a bit like smokers, where they're like, oh, maybe it's not the smoking. It's like, maybe it's not that I've worn flat footed children's shoes for the last 30 years that means I've struggle to walk further than the supermarket without wanting to cry. But you were told off for wearing trainers at one of these events. I was, so she you? was right, yes. Right, okay, well, she Patrick, was... watch out. Yeah. <laughs> but we have in our, our various footwear. So we're three-fourths, three-fourths of the way through the conference season because mm. we're actually, we're missing two of those because Plaid Cymru's, Cymru's conference and the Green Parties are this weekend. But And they're both in Wales. They're both in Wales, yeah. which, I mean, was it's clever, right? It would, would mean that if... If you uh, wanted to go to both, you yeah. could. You, well, yeah. yeah, if you wanted to go to Welsh both, you nationalist could. with green sympathies, you yeah. could. Well, actually, <laughs> well, actually <laughs> in, the, in the 90s, I can't remember which seat it was, the Green Party said they had their first MP elected because uh, I wish I knew... Th- is, was it Sarah Diggin? Where they, the Greens yeah. locally stood down in favour of Plaid, and so some Green anoraks say, actually, Caroline Lucas wasn't their first MP. Gwyn- Gwynford Davis was their first MP in 1992. Um, so there you go. Yeah. The pub quiz question... Um, if you go to very boring pubs. Um, <laughs> but of course, because we wanted to be here, uh, we are, as you can tell, not in Newport. Um, but so let's just kind of, I'm going to go from left left to right. Uh, so yeah, Patrick, what's your kind of take home of the conference season so far? Um, the old is dying and the new is struggling to be born. Um, Ooh, <laughs> deep. I like that. <laughs> nice no, one, Pat. Uh, well, no, no. That, I mean, look. I mean, that's a slightly uh, pretentious way of saying I don't think any of the parties and certainly any of the leaderships really know what they are, or the leaderships know what they are, and the party. So the Lib Dem conference. There was a the big story that was um, you had Joe Swinson and the rest of the um, rest of the MPs who aren't Norman Lamb saying, you know, big up continue to remain, FBP, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there was a sort of undertow of uncertainty, displeasure, unease among the membership. So we spent not something... Well, actually, I was going to say it's not something I recommend doing. If you ever board and have three days to kill on the South Coast in early September, you could do worse than sit in the Live Down Conference Hall for three consecutive days, which is what mm-hmm. we did. 
And actually, it tells you much more about the state of the Liberal Democrats than any newspaper article could, because there's a lot of back and forth about the admission of Philip Lee. Impeccable Remain credentials, not so impeccable credentials as they saw it on LGBT rights and migration. Um, and, you know, you had Alice Carmichael, Lib Dem Chief Whip, on the podium essentially telling people to shut up and enjoy the, enjoy the roller coaster that is becoming the main pro-European party. Um, so that was, that was interesting. And then obviously, you know, similar story at Labour. Uh, what has the Corbyn Project achieved in its four years beyond taking control of the party? Is it really in control of the party? I think the lesson of that conference was not really, sort of, but, you know, not in... It hasn't made the most of its internal hegemony. Yeah, um, I thought, what I thought was interesting about both those votes is in the end, actually, ultimately, both activist-based kind of made the same decision, which is you talk to lots of people who would say, they'd go, I really think we've made a mistake. I think our Brexit policy is going to lose us votes. And we're like, mm. how did you vote? And they're like, well, I voted for the leadership, of course. Um, because I think <laughs> both both of them decided, in my view, both correctly, that the the damage of having a, the wrong Brexit policy mm. is much smaller than the damage of defeating your leader on the floor of conference on national television. <laughs> yeah, uh. that's the thing that I find really interesting because on that question of like the the Liberal Democrats voting to, <laughs> to adopt or revoke as their policy, um, when you spoke to members and in the speeches in the conference hall, I, I found what people were saying wasn't really that they wanted that policy. But I think members were saying, oh, well, they've probably done the polling, which shows that this will win us votes, so we should go with it. And then other people in the conference hall were saying, this is what Joe is asking us to do, so we have to do what Joe's asking us. So it's a sort of, it was a question of blind faith rather than their convictions, which, you know, given the strong Remainer... Um, inclinations of that party is kind of surprising. Your mention of polling is really yeah. interesting because my impression from the conferences, and unlike you three uh, sort of Spartans, I didn't go to all of them, but mm. I just feel like all parties are in this strange period where they are running election campaigns but without an election yet. I mean, we mm. know that there probably will be an election sooner rather than later, but you know, Jeremy Corbyn generally usually uses his conference speech to make a sort of pre-election speech, even though there's not, not an election coming up, because that's the kind of thing that he's good at. And obviously he, he did surprisingly well in 2017, so sort of wants to remind the party faithful of that. But it's strange to hear it from the other parties as well, when no one's really, apart from <laughs> Boris Johnson himself, made the move to try and make that election happen. And I think that makes mm. their policies or their proposals and those rallying speeches ring quite hollow because we don't know when that election is going to be. And it just, you know, it, it feels stale. It doesn't feel like the parties are actually sort of talking about their, their strategies and what they actually believe in. It feels like they're, they're selling things that they think are going to do well. Maybe they've done some yeah. internal polling, you know, things that will do well on the doorstep. But when are they going to go to the doorstep? I mean, my feeling was that the Liberal Democrats had quite a successful conference in that you had the same message being repeated every single time um, that they're going to stop Brexit and then they had some more sort of interesting new policies about further education and so on. Um, and I felt like the membership were quite united behind that. And to the extent I was saying to Stephen the other day that um, Ed Davey was doing an interview on the BBC and I knew what his answer was going to be to every question before he said it. Because mm -hmm. having attended the conference, I knew what the party lines were on everything. It'd be so easy to become their MP and toe the party line, have all these positions which are kind of relatively uncontroversial for their membership. Um, I don't think the same could be said of Labour. Um, I think 
our collective feeling, I don't know if you agree, my collective feeling was that Corbyn was saved by that Supreme Court verdict and it gave him an opportunity to, to come across as a great leader. To, but literally just by announcing the Supreme Court verdict, he just <laughs> he got the biggest cheers of the whole conference, <laughs> even though it had nothing to do with him. It was other opposition parties who led it. But um, that really saved him and gave him an opportunity, like with leading the opposition to No Deal, to come across as a sort of leadership figure. But the rest of the time... I think that the divisions within the party were really on show and from a, a sort of an electoral perspective the the messages that they were wanted to sell to the public just were not coming through in any meaningful way. I mean there were sort of glimpses of of unity, you know, mm. where like Rebecca Long Bailey's speech was very well received, but in general um they weren't really getting through the messages that they really wanted yeah, to. And and it would was you know their slogan? Yeah. Would you know their slogan if you weren't mm. a, a well, nerd like we are? Well, I thought that mm. was the big difference between yeah. 2019 and 2018. In 2018, all of the policies had the same kind of smell. Mm. Um, building Britain for the many, not the yeah, few. Yeah. Even yeah. though they had a similar kind of breadth and radicalism as this year, it's just that you could tell someone went, OK, so what you want to do is announce X. Yeah. Great, but you need to announce it in the way that has the following structure. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, they all essentially had the same vibe as the as the free school meals policy, where it was like, we will take away these tax benefits for private schools, we will give a free school meal to everyone, we're on the side of the underdog against the privileged few. Which, when you look at all of the stuff from a wonkish perspective uh, this year, was still the same. It's just that uh, they didn't have any of that theme. And what it actually really reminded me of was... Ironically enough, a pre-election Lib Dem conference, where because things can't go in the Lib Dem manifesto unless it's been voted on the conference floor, a lot of the time their last conference before the election has this weird vibe of, oh God, the <laughs> tourism policy is out of date. Uh, let's just vote it through. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, like, just, just, just so we can make sure there is a, a relevant page. Because there was lots of stuff which um, mm. I think actually weirdly... From a policies I personally liked perspective, I preferred this conference, right? There was a good announcement on, on drugs policy, effectively... You mean at Lib Dems? Uh, no. Or at, at Labour? At, at Labour, right. There was a good announcement on drugs policy. There was a serious environmental policy. Um, they've finally reached a decision point on whether or not, on what they want to do with universal credit. Mm -hmm. The problem with that kind of slight sort of note of and here's another part of our manifesto that was slightly impressionistic last time that is now concrete, is it meant, as you say, there was no kind of um, theme? Um, mm -hmm. How much that matters, of course, kind of depends on whether or not the election is in December or mm. in the spring. And, and also the absence of a theme. The theme last year, rebuilding Britain for the many, not the few, that spoke to what at the time, certainly among the broader leadership circles, so if you, you know, count Keir Starmer, who isn't, you know, part of the Corbyn circle, but you can plausibly say small L leadership. He's on the sort of outer uh, outer orbit of that. Um, at the time, it was a relatively un uncontroversial consensus within the Labour Party that the route to power was you win back Mansfield, um, you win back the Levy places um, that uh, Boris Johnson has is training his sights on and wants to make increased inroads into now by having a Brexit policy that wouldn't turn off Leave voters and saying... A platform on sort of infrastructure and investment that isn't too dissimilar to Boris Johnson's now. The fact that they that is no longer uncontroversial because the the thinking in Labour leadership last year was, you know, that Peter Mandelson line, you know, about working class voters like, well, Remain voters have nowhere else to go. We can't squeeze the pips of the Remain vote any further. Um, and now this year, that has been comprehensively disproven. Right, the Remain vote does have lots of other places to go. 
Um, so that reflects actually the strategic imperative to the Labour Party. Well, you know, that depends on whether you ask John Trickett, Ian Lavery, or John McDonald, right? You know, so it's much harder to think of a, a theme that, you know, answers the Brexit question, answers the electoral map, map question, and is also sort of an adequate coat hanger to hangle your policy garments on. Yeah, absolutely. You could see that in the way that they didn't talk about towns this time round. I remember last time round, everyone was like, the next election will be fought in our towns. And then there were all of these sort of like rather bleak election party broadcasts in filmed in some sort of X town. Um, and we didn't have that this time round. So that they've lost that theme as well, probably because of those cal- calculations. Yeah, that am a good. I mean, that towns video, I think the only thing I talked to about a Tory conference last year was how good Labour's town yeah. video was, which, I mean, it was. But <laughs> when you've said, I had the fourth conversation with an MP, where you're like, yeah, yeah, it's a good video. Yeah, the guy who made it, yeah, it's really, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, yeah. And it's like, yeah, please, I, I'm so tired of talking about how good this video is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think some of the Labour MPs were quite tired of talking about it as well. I remember speaking to one who represents one of those yeah. very towns, and he was like, it's a bit flat caps, isn't it? He was just like yeah, fed flat, up with it. Flat caps and whippets. But and yeah, also, whippets. it was a good video, though, right? It, it, it was, was a, good, it was a great yeah. video, but also... The guys, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great video, but, I mean, this is like explaining why you like a really problematic film. Um, <laughs> like, not, that, not that I like any problematic films. Um, it's, um, it's like, it totally neglects the thing that is now coming back to bite Labour, which is that, you know... If you're Gloria De Piero, not she's standing at next election, your majority is 440. Stay if everything else stays the same, but because, you know, they think Labour's a bit Brexity and you lose a thousand votes to Lib Dems, you're screwed. Um, but, you know, mm. it's not all flat caps and whippets. Also, you know, if you go to Mansfield, there, you know, in the WH Smith, as I've been to, you can get a copy of the TLS and, you know, the New European and people buy them. Like, the remainers exist in these places. But to slightly defend my own bad take here, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. As someone who thought the, the, the Labour leadership strategy was, was a good idea uh, until embarrassingly recently, um, I, I, I just think Remainers had shown a remarkable willingness not to vote for any of the explicitly pro-Remain parties. And therefore, I think it, was, it made perfect sense last year to proceed on the basis that those voters... It's not, only that they didn't, not the idea that they didn't have anywhere to go, but I mean... The, the weird, one of the more surreal things to happen to my Twitter feed in the last year is people who would actually, honest to God, abuse me whenever I would go, <laughs> if you want to vote for a Remain party, you should vote for the Lib Dems, have now got a yellow star in their Twitter <laughs> handles. And it's just, they just think, I just, I just think it was perfectly reasonable for the Labour leadership to assume that people were going to, to continue. You know, it is like the giving up smoking thing. If... If every, every week since you'd started the New Statesman, I went, I'm going to give up smoking next week, and I hadn't done it, after a while, I think you would be within your rights to base your strategy for whether or not I would want a, like, a cigarette holder for my birthday to be on the <laughs> fact that I wasn't going to give up smoking anytime soon. And the slight weirdness, and I think the thing we all... At least the thing I know I don't understand and therefore I can't predict about the next election is that I don't... So I, I understand the argument for Remain voters doing what they're doing now, but I don't, to be honest, really understand... In a first-past-the-post yeah. election versus Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah. I, but I also don't really understand the, the moment of change um, was, wasn't exactly the biggest provocation than, than Remain voters had had. Um, 
And so it feels to me plausible that just as we don't really understand the exact nature of the timing of the move from Labour to Liberal mm. Democrat, then there could be another sort of move back, which is why I think, uh, so I really want to say defend my old bad take, this is actually still my bad <laughs> take. Um, I think um, that they would have been better off just going, okay, we don't really understand why our, our old strategy, which looked like it was working, has stopped. There's no available better strategy I think they would actually just be better off. I mean, obviously, the problem is you can't take the rest of the party with you on this. But I think they would be better off just hoping and assuming that those people yeah. will in first past the post election. I agree with that. Yeah. I yeah. agree with that because it also does make it. I know that we sort of we think that it's a lazy journalistic trope to say that Labour's Brexit policy is confusing because it's actually quite simple. But it is confusing if Jeremy Corbyn spent X amount of time trying to persuade people that he's not a pro-Remain, you know, politician. And then he's now trying to undo that and persuade people that he is one, you know. Mm. So it, it's quite a long journey to go down. Um, and, it's, and, it, and again, it, ref it reflects the big difference between the message that they were putting out at conference last year and this year. And that's another problem with trying to keep running sort of election campaigns when there's no election as well, because you're trying to find this one sweet spot message that will appeal to your maximum electoral, sort of your electorate. But then you, you have to change because of the way that the political realities change without an election in between. See, I think that the swing towards the Lib Dems by Remainers might stick in that it kind of goes back to the Change UK thing where suddenly people were leaving Labour um, for various reasons, not just because of its Remain position and that sort of legitimised thing, Labour. And then quite quickly, people saw the European elections as an opportunity to, to make their protest vote, mm. basically. But I think that in doing that, it, and then the Lib Dems doing so well, they actually just legitimised the Liberal Democrats massively. And so rather than them, them just being seen as a protest vote now, I think that they're seen as quite a viable option even within a first-past-the-post system. Like, I think the momentum is still with them, even though the initial reasons for people voting for them probably weren't indicative that that was going to happen. Right, so we've talked a lot about the parties of the left. Before yeah. we open up to an extended version of You Ask Us, mm -hmm. um, the Conservatives, this was a weird conference because it was the, well, it was your first conference season full stop. Yeah. The thing you won't have appreciated is this is the first Conservative conference I think mm -hmm. any of us have been to in which uh, members were out outnumbered lobbyists. Because, oh, really? Well, because of the court case, every lobbyist who didn't yeah. want to be there had clearly just taken the excuse with both <laughs> hands to go, oh, yeah, sorry, there won't be any MPs there. Uh, I think I'm just going to stay in the office. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so what, what did you make of, of, of it? Um, so I think the thing that I found interesting was that the Conservative membership is a group that we know a lot about, having just had that leadership race where we were told about the like the statistics around them a lot so we know that they are older and they tend to be white men um and because they've had that leadership race so recently we know that they like overwhelmingly back boris and his position we know that they disproportionately support no deal they, in all those ways they're a known quantity um it was interesting confronting that in real life because what that means is you go to a fringe event you have a show of hands you know packed room show of hands of people in favor of no of no deal it's everyone and that just kept happening or like occasionally one person would put their hand up <laughs> they didn't back no deal and everyone would sort of turn around and boo um <laughs> <laughs> so um i think just being confronted by that i mean if you're you know if you're a conservative remainer or a conservative who backs the deal is sticking with the party you probably weren't in attendance at conference in the same way that those 
conservative MPs who wouldn't necessarily back no deal but who have stuck with Boris Johnson this far and who are just hoping for a deal didn't actually go um that was they were taking selfies of themselves in the chamber. Yeah, they? They, were in, they were in the chamber. Um, and yeah, because as you say, like the lobbyists, they had a legitimate reason to not be there. Then I think the second thing that really struck me was the the people in government were very, very boring. Um, in the like, <laughs> <laughs> like, because it's so new, this government, like they really tow the, the government line mm. um, like so exactly the like fringe event after fringe event they weren't really saying anything interesting and even on the charlotte edwards thing which i was like very interested in at the time after those allegations broke just sitting in you know fringe event after fringe event with someone in government sort of struggling to to find some way of of getting out of that thing like there was no there was nothing they could say if maybe they'd been in government for several years maybe they could have said something that would slightly put pressure on Boris Johnson especially the sort of the known feminists in the cabinet might have put extra pressure on but they they couldn't and they didn't really say anything and and I felt like that happened on so many policy issues I think that was my favorite yeah. hapless MP of the whole yeah. conference season. I mean, yeah. maybe at SNP conference someone will find a way to exceed this, but I can't see how. Was Rachel McLean going, I'm proud to be in a government led by a feminist? And it's just like... And she said it twice. <laughs> even even after the first time when she got like, a huge pushback, said, like, <laughs> she just said the same thing again. Maybe she just had a lot of dead audience jokes she wanted yeah. to make. Yeah, like, I haven't seen an audience this dead since the exit poll dropped. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I think yeah, I'd be really interested in knowing what the fringe was like at Conservative Party conference because they ousted pretty much all the MPs who would make an interesting fringe event. Like you had this weird thing where last year Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg were causing trouble, you know, doing their kind of like freelancing on the fringes, hammering Theresa May. But then this time round, they're the establishment. Where are the rebels? Well, you, that's it. I'm glad you ask um, <laughs> because. Um, Deliciously, so that's a weird word to use given the people I'm about to talk about. Um, John Redwood. So if you, so, uh, John Redwood, Sir John Redwood, uh, Mark Francois, and um, Arlene Foster did a fringe at the Comedy Store, um, which Arlene sort of lent into. She's like, "Well, I know the journalists in the room will think this is really funny, me speaking at the Comedy Store," and you know it was. Um, but the interesting thing, even those sort of unreconstructed opponents of, you know, opposing compromise, especially on these big constitutional questions, um, and Brexit is both of them mashed into one. Um, awful pate, as it were. Um, uh, you know, even they were going out of their way to sound amenable to compromise. That was the, the weird thing, because usually the insurgents on either side of the debate, particularly the ERG, go into these conferences wanting to advance an alternative argument on the fringe, when actually the ERG's message going into this, they deliberately went into this conference not sounding like lunatics. That was their one aim. They wanted to sound like they were up for a deal, and indeed they are up for a deal um, that doesn't exist, but fine. Um, but, you know, they went, into the, they went into this conference wanting not, wanting not to do the thing that people typically want to do on a fringe, which is an advance an alternative argument. And the only fringe where someone did advance an alternative argument, one which um, Dominic Grieve appeared at, Conservatives for People's Vote, was a, attended by like 12 people and, you know, testifies to the thing that Alva said, which is, this ain't your party anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think it does also expose... I mean, it's because when we talk about mistakes made by David Cameron, sort of one looms so large that you kind of forget the idea that there were any others almost. Like, <laughs> um, but one, of the, one of the many mistakes he made, particularly in terms of party management, was 
him saying, oh, I'm only going to, this is my last election campaign in 2015. Because I thought the, the, the thing which really showed is this is basically the only conference other than Theresa May's first one in which um, the identity, well, in which there's a common belief in the Tory party that the identity of the Tory leader in five, maybe ten years' time is known and is the current leader, um, which I think is part of why people are so uninteresting, right? Because, yeah, it's, it's the same with, like, why were... There are loads of reasons why the 2017 and 2018 and, indeed, 2016 Labour conferences were quite successful for the Labour Party. But in 2016, the landslide defeat of Owen Smith had extinguished the idea that a surprisingly large number of people had that it was going to be some kind of temporary Ian Duncan Smith-style uh, proposition. In 2017, his much better than expected uh, result had given him internal hegemony. And in 2018, he kind of was able to sort of reap the fruits of the, the work he'd been able to do from 2017 to 2018. Because the question of who's going to be the Labour leader in five years' time was obviously Jeremy Corbyn. Whereas in 2016, the question of who's going to be the Labour leader in five years' time was like, well, we know it's not going to be David Cameron. But other than that, we don't know. There was that brief period where it was like, oh, well, Theresa May is going to be God Emperor forever. Um, <laughs> and then... Ever since then, every year there's just been this kind of like, well, she could be gone in a month. And I think it's, that's partly why there was this kind of conscious effort to kind of like, you know, be like, I have always wanted a deal. Well, you know, I have always loved the idea of... Dis- a regulatory border down the Irish Sea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is so funny to hear them, the ERG people sound conciliatory or trying to. What, what, Stephen ba- what Steve ba- Baker's comment was... The deal is tolerable. Is that what he said? Tolerable. Well, you know, it <laughs> that's makes it just you know the nicest that they can sound. Well, Steve Baker's normal tone is sort of um, sort of more fire and brimstoney. Mm. Um, Mark Francois, in his speech where he made the big compromise offer, the weird thing was that was uh, that was written up having sat through the hour and a half of John Redwood and Mark Francois, um, you know, doing their sort of radio show sort of thing. Um, <laughs> You know, it was written up as Marc Francois extends an olive branch. But, you know, it was actually like, well, I'm going to publish my memoir and it's going to be called You Couldn't Make It Up. And it was just like that for like <laughs> two long hours. And then there was like a sort of paragraph of, you know, emollient. <laughs> so you're going to be in this memoir, aren't I'm you? I'm in the memoir, yeah. But under a... Yeah, my name is changed. Uh, he keeps telling me about it every time I bump into him. Um, <laughs> in, a, in a previous life at another publication, um, another journalist and I took him for lunch. And... Um, Lots of funny things happened. Um, I'm the the non-raucous journalist in the story. I hasten to add, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it like I mean, the the lunch ended at five is all I can say. Um, like wow. five p.m. having started at one, um, but yeah, it involved lots of revelations about various people. Okay, yeah, but I mean, um, I didn't mean to plug Marc Francois's memoir. <laughs> it just came up, but I mean, I'm going to be buying it. <laughs> and now we can all identify you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so Apparently, I'm going to be called Sandrine, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird insight. I think, Mark I think that's a joke. <laughs> um, right. Well, I mean, on that bombshell, um, <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of questions now. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
So this is our extended version of You Ask Us. So should we take them in threes or should we do oh, one at a time? Let's not do that very new Labour trick. Where you <laughs> take, them in, take them in threes and that way like the heart. Yeah, Who like, are you, Stephen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think whenever someone goes, oh, we'll take batches of threes, it's like, don't help them. Because <laughs> it is just a way that you're like, Minister, I have a detailed question. Yeah. Minister, do you agree that Brexit is wonderful? It's like, <laughs> well, I, what I'm I'll hearing. ask the second <laughs> yeah. question first. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the idea of the prorogation sort of saving Corbyn, and, and actually that's kind of a, a quirk of the sequencing of how conferences went this year. I'm wondering a bit of kind of counterfactual history. Do you think that if the Labour conference had been the first one of the three major Westminster parties, and I think there was a lot of fear that the Labour Party, from the Lib Dem side, a lot of fear that the Labour Party was going to go kind of ultra Romani, but actually it ended up being the kind of leadership fudge thing, that would the Lib Dem have then kind of felt not so pushed to need to go to the revoke policy and could have stayed at a more pe- people's vote sort of place? Well, what an interesting sort of question. We'll find out. We'll find out. Conveniently, for you and journalists everywhere, Labour's conference is first next year because they mixed up the bookings. <laughs> so actually, this, we'll, get to, we'll get to test the theory of how successful or can a Lib Dem message be if it's outflanking Labour, if Labour have, you know, who knows where we'll be next year, will Labour even exist. But anyway, it's certainly true that lots of Labour MPs, especially Remainers, went into their own conference thinking, oh, you know, the Lib Dems have had a brilliant week, um, revoke is all over the news, I'm getting it, I'm getting loads of heat on the doorstep about this. I mean, but what, what do you think? Do you think... So I think... I think it is actually a classic example of how the order completely would have changed the, the mood music. One, because the, the Lib Dems, in, it turns out, entirely incorrect bet, right, was that they needed to have a more intense Remain position because they thought Labour was going to uh, match where they were and then they would then have this sort of how many month long period in which you have no broadcasting rules and every debate on the TV is between Labour and the Conservative and their vote share just goes down and down and down and down every week. Which, I mean, did make... Per, it makes perfect strategic sense in the context of the week beginning the 1st of September or whenever it was. But, of course, by the... So, yeah, I think if you imagine that they had been reversed, I mean, one, it would have meant that you wouldn't have had Labour MPs going into that conference. Because uh, we forget, because the MPs who have UKIP in strong seconds are, you know, more likely to get media exposure because the things they say are broadly in line with more of our press. But, actually, the average Labour MP is somewhere where they've had a Lib Dem council, a scare over the Iraq war, a scare into... They are much more personally worried about the Lib Dems, right? The average Labour MP who doesn't, you know, make a, a lot of noise and tries to be constructive, nonetheless did go into that conference in a state of, they've just had a really good conference and I'm really worried about it. Of course, if they'd gone first, they wouldn't have just had a really good conference. Yeah, they'd have had the defections and they'd have had Brecon, but ultimately, they, I think a lot more people would have gone, they're a Tory problem. Yeah, the seats they're going to revive in, you know, meh, who cares? It's nice that they're doing well, uh, you know, but really... I'm not an MP for the South East. Who cares? And then, of course, I think it would have been harder for... I think it would still have passed because of the urge to unify behind the leader. But it would have been a lot closer. And, of course, the Lib Dems narrowly backing a revoke policy is a very different headline than them um, backing a, uh, you know, backing it overwhelmingly. And also, crucially, the, the transformative brilliance of the result for Labour was that it meant then he could go out, you know, they crashed him in. Uh, it meant they got rid of the nightmare of Tom Watson's speech, which... There is no way that could have gone well, right? If people cheer him, it would have been covered by the press as Labour activists sock it to Corbyn. If they'd booed, it would have been covered by the press as angry left-wing cultists attack Tom Watson. If they'd listened in silence, it would have been sullen left-wing cultists. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there was no positive headline that, that, that would, have, would have been created for, from it. Um, but 
instead it would have it would have yeah it was also it's also a nightmare for the Lib Dems right because when the question is deal or no deal the the biggest party uh, you know the, the essential actor in terms of actually preventing no deal is of course the main opposition Labour they reestablish their leading role without having and it entirely unifies the whole party so yeah I think the order would have just been so different in terms of how it had played out um, not least because because like in a way there's been this weird sort of overreaction in the Tory side, then they're like, oh, isn't it funny that the, the... Well, when you talk to Tories in Lib Dem facing seats, they don't go, oh, isn't it funny that the Labour vote is splitting to the Lib Dems? But a lot of, a lot of Conservatives have managed to kind of forget that all of their target seats do not have Labour MPs in them. And I think if you reverse the order, then I think it would have been a lot harder for Conservative MPs to spend this com- that conference in a kind of like, sort of what I think of as like Richmond blindness. Um, so yeah, I, I just, just think it would have completely altered the mood music on all of them if they'd gone in a different order. See, I, my instinct would have been kind of the opposite. In the, I think when we arrived at the Lib Dem conference, there was already a feeling with that revoke policy that they didn't really need to do it. Um, and I think that that would have still been the case the other way around. Um, I think that, yeah, there was this feeling that, it w- that that revoke position had come out of nowhere. They were being asked to do it. They were already known as a strong Remainer party. They would have been known that way if Labour conference had come first and they had voted that way to go with Corbyn's plan. Um, and I think that, yeah, it was data-driven rather than mood-driven, that everyone was like, I don't, see, I don't see why we need to do this, but okay, you know, we're a data-driven party. Clearly, like, some oracle has said we need to do this, so we'll vote for it. So I think probably the, li- the Lib Dem position wouldn't have been any different, and, and I think the members would have similarly, yeah, backed it for reasons of, of loyalty and pragmatism rather than because they want it, because I didn't feel like they particularly in their hearts wanted it anyway. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't think it yeah. would have made a difference to the Lib Dems, um, yeah. the outcome of the Lib Dem conference, but I do think it made a massive difference for Labour having their conference when they did, not just because of the Supreme Court ruling changing the course of that conference and making Jeremy Corbyn's speech you know, all the more triumphant, um, but because at the same time Thomas Cook collapsed as, as that, as that mm. conference and just from looking at some of the coverage, not just in the papers but mainly the broadcast news, most of that was stranded British holidaymakers and then it was sort of Thomas Cook fat cats and, you know, all of those stories, broadcast journalists love them because they're great footage and, you know, tabloids love them because they hate Brits being trapped on holiday and they love to bash fat cats. Um, So it was all over the papers and some MPs who were worried about things that were coming out of the Labour conference, not just the face-off on the conference floor over the Brexit policy, and the Tom Watson row, but also, you know, some some MPs in certain seats weren't happy with some of the policies coming out, like the idea that they would abolish private schools, for example, <laughs> were saying, well, it doesn't matter because it's, it's only been on the front page of the Times. We haven't seen it anywhere else because of Thomas Cook. So if the Labour conference hadn't been at the time that it was, I think they would have missed those two great sort of saviours of the god of news, um, that the god of news sort of mm. gave the Labour Party that, that week. Yeah, I think there's a lot in, I, and I think it's Thomas Cook, because also the thing that, yeah, kind of always important to remember is that the Lib Dems actively struggle for coverage because they're mm. the third party. Yeah. Someone who used to work for the Labour Party uh, once said to me that they were just like, they said, well, they said, we struggle for fair coverage, but at least we don't struggle to get coverage. They struggle for coverage, um, uh, and the Tories can just get coverage whenever they like, was essentially there. And this thing, if you're the Lib Dems and Thomas Cook happens, then it kind of means that 
yeah. that actually no are more important. Be, yeah, and just yeah. no one cares and, about and people policy. aren't certainly say the good thing about Corbyn's speech, which was sort of top loaded with, um, you know, Boris Johnson is a tyrant, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, meant that if you're doing, if you're a broadcaster doing a bit on the Supreme Court, which is your top story, you know, you can very easily. You know, rummage in the Jeremy Corbyn speech bin and pick something out. But <laughs> if Joe Swinson's speech had been the only keynote speech that day, if you are a broadcast producer, are you likely to include a flick of that as your top opposition reaction? I don't. I don't think so. No, they would. Yeah, they would have just gone with Corbyn doing a statement outside of his office. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. That's a really good question. Uh, so no pressure on uh, the, uh, the woman over there. Having had all three conferences, what's your feeling now about when the general election is going to be and when slash if we leave the EU? Ooh. <laughs> Patrick, I'll I'll volunteer first. Um, so uh, I don't know whether this is just uh, contrarianism, but so much of my analysis analysis is. I think we're not going to have a general election till spring. I'm not entirely sure what my working there is. I just sort of feel we're going to get to next month, and I don't. I think I don't think I just don't think there'll be the appetite for a winter election among the parties. When will we leave the EU? We'll leave the EU without a deal on January the thirty-first. I think because the outcome of a actually no, it doesn't make. Sorry, I can't reconcile those two things. <laughs> Right, okay, okay, okay. Okay, we're going to have a, an election in uh, early December and we're going to leave without a deal on January the 31st because the next parliament will be just as ill-equipped to prevent no deal slash approve a deal as this one. Yeah, I think what Patrick said about the appetite of the parties is really important because the only way we're going to get an election now is if the two main parties want one, right? So if they have to delay the leaving date from the 31st of October, which it, which it looks like they might have to do, although Boris Johnson you know, has said no delay, but those papers in the um, Edinburgh's Court of Session suggest otherwise from the government. So let's say they're going to delay it. I don't think that Boris Johnson is going to want to go into an election with that um, broken promise. Yes, he's tried to set up a people versus parliament kind of uh, nasty atmosphere but when you look at the stuff that Nigel Farage is saying so I'm on his list of s supporters at the moment so that I can see what he tells his supporters um, <laughs> Farage till I die um, but he, he says you know betrayal or Brexit Boris Johnson's just reheated Theresa May's rotten withdrawal agreement you know all of this stuff he's going to be saying that and people who are really hardcore Brexiteers in the country are going to be taking that as their you know as their first reaction, rather than Boris Johnson's attempt to try and sort of make it sound like him and his party who, who support him aren't MPs somehow and, and other people versus the MPs. So he won't want one. Labour won't want one because of the polls and because of the various reasons why they haven't gone on a vote of no confidence at the moment. Um, yes, you know, the, the official line is because they want to make sure that Boris Johnson doesn't use that period to to crash out but actually uh, there's a mm. lot of other reasons why Labour doesn't want to go into an election anytime soon so I do think that there's there's a lot in what you say that there might not be one this year as to what happens to the late the leaving date for for the EU I, I don't know I couldn't say that with any certainty so my feeling would actually be that we're still headed for a winter election just because once Boris Johnson has been forced to seek this extension I well so that that's dependent on two things. I think he probably isn't going to get a deal with the EU, and I don't think that he's going to find some magic way of not seeking that extension. And I think after that, we'll be in a situation where 
Labour and the other opposition parties have no reason not to seek a general election, even if they don't particularly want one for all those reasons. I think they're going to have to go for one anyway, because that their their whole reason that they need to make sure that Boris Johnson prevents, you know, they have to make sure that no deal can't happen before they have one. That'll be taken off the table. And then it'll be similar for the Conservatives, that they want an election. I think their their strategy won't change, you know, whether it's whether we have it in, you know, whether we call it like late November, early December, whether it happens a bit later, they will have still had to seek that extension. And I think that they maybe think that their message is still getting through to people, um, that even if they've been forced to seek that extension, I think as long as you're projecting the message that your hands were tied and it was Parliament forcing you to do it, I think maybe your electoral strategy still works. Even if Nigel Farage is out there all the time and we know how much coverage he gets saying, Boris Johnson's betrayed you, Look at all these times he said we'll leave on the 31st of October. I just don't think their message is See, strong enough to. So I agree, but then I also think that that's maybe a reason for the opposition parties to go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that reason, I think it's, yeah, I'd still yeah. bank on a winter election. Labour would feel more confident in yeah. those, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. But I essentially think, right, well, so there's, scenario, there's, there's kind of the, the possible scenario, which is that they do find some way to follow the law without following the spirit of it where in that case we don't have an election for a long time because if we do have a no deal, you know, as with the Tories after Black Wednesday, as with Labour after the financial crisis, you'll just have a government going, maybe if we wait till the very end of the parliament, people will forget the food riot. (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah, like, kind of this sort of, um, and people will sort of hope that, yeah, so we'll have like May 2022, right? So that's kind of, I don't think it's likely, but that's like a possible outcome. Then let's say then there's an extension. And I kind of think, right, in the same way this, this argument um, that like a large chunk of the broadcast press wants to, wants to propagate then the Labour Lib Dem position on why they don't want an election is confusing. But actually anyone who doesn't hate Jeremy Corbyn um, you know, to, to a, as a, essentially as a full-time job can see the, the, the argument... We can see the lines of, okay, this guy said he'll break the law, you don't trust him, therefore you want to wait. I kind of think the people will blame Boris Johnson feels like the sort of reverse of that. I just think the average person will be like, okay, but you, you literally tried to suspend representative democracy in order to get your way. Um, you've been forced to do this. I don't think it will matter. But even if that's wrong, which could be, you know, lots and lots of people think it, it is. Yeah, I wrote and I thought it would be fine. And I spent the next two days of Tory conference with MPs coming up to me being like, who is your dealer? Um, <laughs> you, someone, one of them did come up to me like, you've got to help me out. I can't go through this conference sober. And I was just oh, yeah, very funny. And they, they committed a full 15 minutes to this bit than the idea that I must have been high to write the piece. Um, but I just think... If it's not, right, if, if it does destroy the Conservatives' electoral process, as Alva says, then suddenly everyone else in the Commons will go, oh, I, I hear elections are great this time of year. Yeah. The Labour leadership already wants one, and although lots of MP, Labour MPs go, oh, we'd prefer not to have one, we'd like to have a referendum instead, it's just like, I mean, it's just like, ring off, it's not going to happen. Like, you know, the, the, the Labour leadership already thinks it looks daft enough even though they, they think... So they, they completely get the argument for why they haven't gone, the ele- gone for the election, but they do also think that there's a downside risk to going, we don't want this election we've been calling for. They're not going to say, fine, we'll wait again, because, you know, someone in the West Midlands who slagged us off 800 times is worried they'll lose their seat. 
they still think they can turn it around in the election. So I think it will be in, yeah, I, I think it will be in the winter because I just can't see the process whereby, partly because they still can't legislate, right? Like this ultimately, um, the government, we, well, the government, I say needs election. Obviously, it might just get the same version. Words. But what I agree with Patrick is I think, and obviously all of the election outcomes are really unlikely. Um, so I, I, I've started doing our kind of, map of exciting places and I'm going to force Patrick and Alva to go um, and the thing you kind of forget is that you know um, the great success in 2017 on the Labour perspective is they um, transformed a lot of places that in 2015 had looked very safe to marginals again but there's still like a sort of long tail of places in kind of from sort of Labour to get for 290 to 325, which, you know, have these kind of like Soviet-style Tory majorities. And the disaster of Theresa May's approach is, although you have basically like, you look at the first 10 Conservative targets and you go, yep, seems reasonable. In 11, it's like, oh, a Labour majority of 15,000? And, and so it's just... It's just so difficult just in terms of how the swing works to anyone to get out of this situation. But the one thing which will be different in the next parliament is that any change will reduce the number of... It will basically make all of the parties slightly more rational in terms of you know, their positions and their MPs, right? In the, every Labour MP who stands down will be replaced by someone who likes the EU and likes Corbyn. And everyone who... And they might be slightly lying about one of those two positions, but they will, they, they will hold at least one of them sincerely. Um, every conservative who loses their seat to the Liberal Democrats will be, repla- will be essentially replacing someone who's going, guys, let's please vote for a Brexit deal so I don't get eaten by the yellows, will be replaced by someone who's on a manifesto pledge not to do Brexit. And if you look at those, the most rebellious intake of Tory MPs are Tory MPs who gained... So you know, if, say, Stephen Kinnock is right to think his seat is up for grabs if he seemed to stop Brexit. If, if he gets replaced by a Tory, that Tory ain't going to vote for a deal. So I think the one majority that is most at risk at the next election is that majority to kind of go, let's ask for another extension. So it feels to me that the most likely outcome is that we leave in a disorderly fashion at the end of whenever the next deadline is, um, simply because it's so difficult for the, for this, for the next parliament to be more able to re- yeah. resolve Brexit. Because a lot was made when, say, anti-no-deal Tories like Oliver Letwin resigned, oh, sorry, announced their intention to retire. You know, ditto Alistair Burt and everyone else losing the whip. It's like, hey, well, they're liberated to act however they please in this parliament. But actually, I think there's been a, a failure on the part of the commentariat to think more than two steps ahead. It's like, okay, who's going to be selected in North East Bedfordshire? Who's going to be selected in West Dorset? Um, and the answer is... People who don't sound, as you say, people who don't say or sing the same tunes as Oliver Letwin and Alistair Burt on Brexit. Can it be argued that the next election is one to lose because it may well be trying to sort out post-Brexit and the mess that there's going to be? So all this business about, oh, it's going to be easy, easy, easy. What's happening now will be like nothing that happens 18 months after Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to win that election if I was yeah. Prime Minister. But I think what we forget, maybe, um, is that politicians um, really do want to deliver the policies that they think would make the country better. So, you know, they would want to win that election in order to 
to put their program into place because that's how they feel the country should be run. So you know, if you say, well, why would you know why would the Labour Party want to to win the a, a post No Deal say election? Um, well, you know, because they believe in their radical agenda for 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 the UK economy and they want to to deliver it. So I don't think there's ever going to be a politician, a leader of a party who doesn't want to win an election for 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 the reasons that you said. It sort of depends. I, th- I certainly agree with um, your point about the leaderships. I guess it depends who you ask. And Stephen, you wrote a, an excellent column in this week's New Statesman about this. Actually, if you are um, a downtrodden faction within your own party, and this goes for sort of Tory wets, um, to use a sort of imperfect term, and uh, the harder end of Labour's, Labour's Corbyn sceptics, um, yeah, like, you know, you might in your head be saying, well, it'd be great if we lost this election because the internal dial would shift. Listen to... Recall what Dave Ward, the um, General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union, said after 2015. He was addressing a massive Corbyn rally and said, well, scenes like this make you glad, make you almost glad that Labour lost the election because it does present an opportunity for internal change um, within the party. So if you, are, if you were to ask some Corbyn Scottie MPs or, you know, some Tory MPs, even t- some Tory Brexiteers, um, you know, say, well, would it necessarily be such a bad thing for us to rejuvenate an opposition and hone our message and, you know, complete the purge or start a new purge or whatever? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think there are two sort of parts. I think one, right, the, so the, the, I ended up because we had a cover story on the Tories having to write about uh, Labour slightly unexpectedly. Um, because what I was originally going to write about was something that a Tory MP said to me that, yeah, the thing about Dominic Cummings' career is it's uh, vic- failure punctuated by victories which just then bequeath more failure because his approach <laughs> to winning is just to lie to people. Right, essentially to go, if you vote for me, I'll give you free cake, to then retire to his big house, uh, leave some other Tory, be like, I'm afraid there is no cake, uh, <laughs> and then to write self-congratulatory blogs about how the problem was that his great genius wasn't... And he's doing it again, right? We have a, if the Tories win, then the day after, they're going to have to turn around and go, oh, yeah, none of that stuff was true. <laughs> and, of course, if the Labour Party wins or the Liberal Democrats win a majority, I mean... That, I felt that I had to say that just to give some kind of fairness, and I feel kind of silly now. Um, but, um, but you know, they are going to have to turn around and go, oh, yeah, by the way, those promises that have been made to you um, uh, about Brexit can't be kept. Uh, there's a clear trade-off. Uh, which one of those trade-offs do you want? So I think, and that is, you know, one of the things which is absolutely not true about the present Labour leadership is he does not secretly want no deal because they are intensely aware that, yes, it means that you get like a huge majority, but it means that instead of getting to spend your time reworking the British economic model, you spend all of your time kind of clearing up the broken crockery. So in many ways, it is the problem is, right, at some point, this cycle of the Conservatives making promises they can't keep... uh, does mean that someone else, whether it's another part of the Conservative Party or hopefully from outside, a new government has to go, those promises can't be kept, sorry. But it does make it really unattractive. I guess for me the reason why uh, they're right in all three parties not to want to win is uh, when in another life I was a a student activist uh, in a political party, uh, none of which are things which apply to me anymore, unfortunately, but um, someone said to me in 2010, this will be a good election for us to lose, we're exhausted we need to renew ourselves in opposition and come back stronger in five years. That man's name was David Miliband. Um, and I just kind of think, like, ultimately, like renewing yourself often turns out to be a longer and more painful process than parties think it will be. Assuming we have a winter election, how will the weather conditions affect voter turnout, do you think, geographically and demographically? 
We have to answer this question every time there's an election, actually, and that, so that's been quite a lot recently. <laughs> and most of the evidence say it doesn't make any difference at all. Really? Yeah. Oh, actually, so there's a book out which there's a very good forward to called More Sex Lies in the Ballot Box or Sex and Politics. Sex Lies in Politics. So yeah. they, they've tracked with council elections, and basically it makes no difference up until about the heart of December when it just suddenly craters off. Whether that's because of the cold or the dark... But, of course, the fun thing, of course, is the election might be right at the tipping point where, basically, up until the first week of December, mostly it makes no difference turnout-wise. However, the good thing is, actually, it doesn't. it's an entirely secular effect. Everyone is less likely to vote, so you just end up with lower vote shares and the same effect. Of course, that's in council by-elections where lots of them are are safe, you have independence, it's statistically noisy. But yeah, the evidence is that it only really matters if the election is like after the 15th of December. Following the Labour Party conference, there were some murmurings, I think perhaps originating from your Twitter account, Stephen, that the movements from the leadership in the ab- uh, abolition of Labour students and the attempt to purge the deputy leadership position are indicative of a move towards perhaps like gearing up for a leadership change. I wonder if the panel could maybe speculate as to how that would actually happen. Yeah, so I'm so interested in this. I'm not sure if we agree on it, but um, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that Jo Swinson has said that she she wouldn't work with Corbyn, but that she would be happy to work with Labour with a different leader. And obviously that is, that's not, you know, it's possible, but it's not a definite outcome of the next election, and the next election hasn't even been called yet. But if that were to happen, I think maybe that's what Labour are gearing up for that'll be a condition because crucially like the Liberal Democrat membership have to vote in favour of whatever coalition deal the Lib Dems strike and that would not only be Joe Swinson's red line but it would be their red line like that was one of the big messages coming out of conference and what I found interesting was that there's pretty much no one else that the Lib Dems would mind being leader except maybe John McDonnell but someone like Rebecca Long-Bailey someone like Angela Rayner they would be happy with in terms of a coalition deal In terms of a successor within the Labour Party, I think that's a different and also interesting question. My money would still be on Rebecca Long-Bailey, also possibly Angela Rayner. But yeah, Rebecca Long-Bailey, and there have been some noises about Laura Pidcock, and I think Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry would also stand, but the money should be on Becky. Mm, Yeah, I think we've seen from conference and also just from since Jeremy Corbyn became leader that the party does what, what it's told, really, in terms of Corbyn sort of Corbyn loyalty and Rebecca Long-Bailey has been sort of positioned for quite a long time now as the sort of Corbyn continuity candidate pure she's good on the airwaves she doesn't make gaffes she's very loyal she's been announcing these sort of new policies that are very popular with the membership the Green New Deal stuff so I think she's probably probably most likely to have the best chance looking at what the Labour Party looks like right now. So I think one of the things that Corbyn often doesn't get enough credit for, partly because so much of the press coverage is from the point of view of his internal enemies, is he's mostly really good at kind of doing a, oh, I'm going to do a subtle thing here, I'm going to do a small thing here, oh, surprise, I've got a very large NEC majority. And the the move to get rid of Tom Watson, seeing as he's structurally a minority in the NEC, as we saw he's structurally a minority on the conference floor, was so self-destructive and so out of character that, to my eyes at least, the only the only reason for the pro-Corbyn NEC majority, and I'm sorry, I just 
I think if anyone buys the idea, then his chief of staff, the Corbyn-friendly trade unions, all managed to <laughs> freelance to do this without him having any idea what's going on before he coincidentally left two minutes before having spoken to John Landsman. I mean, I just think, if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. Uh, like, I think the only reason to do that is if Tom Watson is going to become relevant again. The only situation where Tom Watson becomes relevant again is if there is a vacancy. I also don't buy the persistent rumours about his health. You know, as a, a lifelong North London resident, I have, you know, I know this sounds like something and someone would say in, like, you know, Pravda, but I have seen with my own eyes Jeremy Corbyn jogging and looking uh, perfectly healthy at the same time. I once actually, the most surreal thing was getting a phone call from someone briefing me that he was ill, and it literally, you could not have timed it better in a sitcom, <laughs> as Jeremy Corbyn himself jogged. <laughs> past my line of vision um, and I just those labour spinners are good yeah, aren't they it was, <laughs> it was so well timed yeah, it was just, um, but I just think that yeah, they, they thought in 2017 if he lost votes and seats he wouldn't be able to stay so it doesn't make sense from so I think it feels to me like a symbol that at least some people in that office are going well what happens if it doesn't work out I kind of think it's important it's really easy to kind of think oh the average Labour member is like the average Labour activist or the average person who turns up at this kind of event you know politically informed uh, yeah obviously they're more politically informed than the average person but they're significantly less politically informed than the average Labour activist or the average person who comes to an event like this one the most important event in the first leadership election he won was the BBC hustings not anything in Labour List, not anything in the NS, not anything in the Guardian, but the BBC hustings, because the average Labour member is is just not actually that politicised. I think that Rebecca Long Bailey starts in quite a strong structural uh, position. I slightly dissent from Patrick's view about the woman thing, partly because um, my private view was that I didn't think that Joe could win because the Lib Dems have an even worse record on uh, electing women than the the Labour Party, and. Um, and also, unlike the Labour Party, they're not even ashamed by it. Um, and, and, and she actively, in some of the hustings, you could hear a pin drop when she'd go, come on, guys, this isn't a representative audience. What are you guys kidding about? And I just thought, oh, this is a terrible mistake. You're going to lose. And she won by a landslide. So I think, that, I think it's possible that Labour may similarly surprise that. But we j- it's so unknowable because, like, what are the circumstances? Yeah. Who are the candidates? And as with the last... I know that was one between those two, but as with the last Labour leadership election, which changed the leader, there was, there's been a rule change designed around partisan advantage. And as we saw last time, the thing about designing rules for partisan advantage is people aren't always the best ga- gauge of what their partisan advantage actually is. Um, it's harder for anyone to get on the ballot. Uh, we don't know how many candidates there will be, and a lot, I think, will depend probably on who um, ends up being described as the right most candidate right if you have a situation where you have becky long bailey um keir starmer emily thornbury angela rayner and it's a two-person field i think it's harder for that person to win if you have yvette cooper uh who does is still seriously trying to run for leader but i'm not certain that she can get on the ballot and this is weirdly may be where the Labour student stuff becomes important uh, again because they did notionally have nominating rights as an affiliate, Um, then maybe it's easier for someone from the middle of the party to win as the unifying candidate because that was the thing that uh, the leadership uh, feared in 2016 was two candidates. They feared this idea that you'd have Corbyn someone from the right of the party and then someone from the middle going, it's all very difficult, let's just unify. And smart Corbyn sceptics know this, that they need a kamikaze Corbyn sceptic on the ballot to win. Like you need, you know, it was like, which is why 
is a great, it's a really interesting question, Mike. Does the disappearance of Chris Leslie from the Labour Party make things difficult or more easy for Corbyn to get this? Because imagine, imagine if Chris Leslie had somehow suspended your disbelief about, you know, the PLP's views on Chris Leslie as a human being and the structural difficulty on, of Chris Leslie getting onto the ballot. Like, say, like, Chris Leslie is there, like, and Angela Rayner is here. Like, Angela Rayner is no longer, you know, sus- people saying, oh, you know, you're a kinnock, you're, you know, actually pretending to run for the left and now you're going to... You actually look just objectively quite left-wing. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question. Whether there'll be a kamikaze Corbyn sceptic or not will dictate how the sort of Corbyn sceptics who are better at hiding their Corbyn scepticism will do. The uh, disorderly Brexit, to return to the scenario of a no-deal Brexit, in the early days of Brexit, it was the idea that any government in a no-deal scenario would collapse very, very quickly. And this idea seems to have gone away, and no-deal now seems to often be presented as something we could weather is that because we're now much better prepared for a no-deal Brexit, or have we just forgotten the first principles of any government operating in that scenario? I would say it's the latter. I think, you know, how good at governments are weathering economic shocks? Well, I guess Gordon Brown's government weathered an economic shock, but Gordon Brown's government had a majority of 67. Uh, it wasn't 67 at that point, was it? But it had a, big, a biggish majority. Yeah, it, was six, it was still 67 because they hadn't had any of the by-election losses. Up and down. I mean, so I guess the question becomes whether or not yeah i mean i think there's an element that like the 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 bit of government spin that has been most internalized by journalists is this um idea that the 31st of october is a kind of magical date uh and if we leave then that will come how completely check well it will change politics but not in the way that the government's been suggested and you see it both with like the weird criticisms of the remain side yeah when people go like why are labor the liberal democrats and the smp thinking about political advantage and not just stopping it on the 31st it's just like well because they have to stop it again on the 1st of november so if the labor party stops it in a way which means that the labor party loses all but 10 seats well they haven't stopped no deal for very long but yeah this i mean so i basically think in an odd way the the old position was wrong because governments which have done something and the voters hate hang around in the hope that the voters will forget and in a way, we've, we've moved from believing that there's a no-deal Brexit and then the Conservatives go, our poll ratings collapse to the what I think would collapse to the... I think even Yellowhammer, which is the mo- best-case scenario, I just think the idea that the, government's, the government, a government would survive that politically, I just think, is, uh, is kind of crazy. Ironically, given the, uh, the, the things the codes are for, it is literally for the birds. Uh, but um, but uh, instead, we've moved to this thing of, oh, it happens... And then everyone kind of goes like, oh, I'm a bit annoyed. We're actually in a worse place to weather it, partly because October is a worse time of year to stockpile because retailers stockpile for Christmas. It's into the flu season, et cetera, et cetera. And also because a bunch of people who spent a lot of money that they couldn't really afford to, you know, lots of small businesses which were fairly well prepared have gone, well, we had to take on debt to do that. It didn't happen. We can't afford to do it again. So we're actually in a worse position. I guess the big change is, I mean, Alva, obviously you are from a part of the United Kingdom where... um, Party's immunity to literally burning money is is quite high, <laughs> and the, uh, the 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 you know the thing that the thing that uh, lots of people think is are do you feel that, that the United Kingdom is heading towards a thing where basically you have a Remain block and a Leave block, and no matter how many renewable heat incentives you have, those blocks don't really change. Yeah, I feel like we're maybe already there with the Remain block and the Leave block. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like as, yeah, in a way that's a slightly different question, um, but. Yeah, I feel like for all of the illusion of the DUP representing like Leave voters in Northern Ireland, that's still a, a, a effectively a Remain bloc who would, um, yeah, 
Yeah, I think we're, we're nowhere near prepared or any more prepared than when the prospect first made itself known. Um, the only reason why we're talking about no deal more and there seems to be more sort of um, acquiescence um, surrounding it in the press is because it's become the sort of default Brexiteer position as, as you know, the Remain position has become more extreme. You know, we started out with people saying, well, we could have a second referendum with leave on it. Now it's far more extreme than that if you're a fully signed up Remainer. It's the same on the, the Leave side. You know, no deal is the only pure position for, for, for more and more Brexiteers. It was never really mentioned in the referendum campaign. So I think it's just be, it's become the norm because, because our politicians are trying to, um, you know, they're, they're trying to pander to the people who have the most extreme view. Thank you very much stop. for yeah. all of your <laughs> questions. Uh, yeah, I, I hope none of you have got our conference lurgies. Uh, thanks so much for coming mm. and enjoy the rest of the day. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.